My guest this week was a writer on some of my favorite television shows of all time, Late Night Slash Late Show with David Letterman and The Simpsons. He also was a writer and executive producer on some very good sitcoms such as Just Shoot Me, Bored to Death, New Girl, Parks and Recreation, Silicon Valley, and AP Bio. He recently put out a documentary about hallucinogenics called Have a Good Trip, which I watched on Friday, and it was really good. It's a pleasure to have Donna Carey. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming. Or going on the computer. It's I'm happy to press a button and say hello. Okay. So, uh, who were some of your early uh, comedy influences? Um, I, you know, I, I grew up loving, loving, loving comedy, like, like full nerding out on anything that could make me smile. But I also, um, you know, it was about laughing, but it was also about like studying how to make other people laugh. So I love Monty Python. I love Bill Murray. I love Steve Martin. I love uh, Pee Wee Herman. Um, uh, I, I love Charlie Chaplin as a little kid. Those, those were magical to me. Um, but yeah, I just, any, anything I could get in, this was in an era that was before the internet. So it was, you had to really work to, to get this stuff. Um, and like you'd find, uh, uh, a, like a Woody Allen book at a yard sale and then just devour it and read the whole thing or a, a Mel Brooks, uh, comedy album. And you'd listen to every, even like Alan Sherman albums when I was eight years old, you'd find those at the thrift store where I grew up and you'd be like, what, somebody's making comedy albums? That's even a job that somebody could have? That blew my mind. So I love I love any comedy, I, wherever I could get it. Okay, and there's not one particular person that you were a big fan of? I mean, I think the big, you know, the big ones were, look, at, like, it's funny because I just, like, it crossed my mind, like, well, like, I watched The Brady Bunch and, and uh, Three's Company and stuff, and those are all technically comedies, um, but I knew that what was really comedy was, like, Monty Python and Steve Martin. Bill Murray and stuff. So John Belushi was a huge, uh, huge one early on that I was like, oh, wow, I, I want to be that guy. That guy seems to be doing what he wants. And then, and then it got sad. And then I was like, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> you got a chance to work with uh, Steve Martin and uh, Bill Murray over the years, or at least meet them. Yeah, that's been um, that's been a really interesting part. Look, I've had a really um, wonderful career. Met a lot of idols, a lot of people. I I. Uh, love you know have loved and then got to work with um and both yeah both bill murray and steve martin were were frequent guests frequent guests at letterman uh it was always like both terrifying and a thrill to get to work with them and uh it was funny because you have like a day where um you might have madonna and and uh aerosmith and bill clinton or something coming in and you're getting together the comedy and arranging the show and you're like right 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 madonna does this go give this to madonna Bill Murray is here, you know, and you'd be nervous about the Bill Murray part, but not really notice the other celebrities, you know. Right, because the ones you like are different than even the ones who were like the bigger stars. Right, right. I will say that the first um, when I was I was an intern at uh, SNL. I was dating I was dating someone who worked there, and uh, she and I uh, hit hit this realized that if you were an extra on SNL, you'd, you'd get about $600, which was far more than either of our paychecks. So she kept trying to slip me in as like, why doesn't Donick be an extra? And then she and I could have, you know, would have money to pay the rent. Um, mm -hmm. And it was super fun. Look, I liked, you know, hanging out at SNL on the weekends. But um, one night she called and she was like, hey, um, I've been invited to dinner with Lauren. He wants you and I to join, you know, like this dinner she was really good friends with his girlfriend so i'd constantly be in these very weird i was 20 years old or so and i was constantly in these very weird dinner situations where it was lauren his girlfriend my girlfriend steve martin and me and we're at like a fancy dinner and i was like what is happening and then i was shocked to watch lauren and steve talk about lauren had just redraped his house in the hamptons and Steve was fascinated with what kinds of drapes he got and where he got these drapes and what kind of fabric it was. And I was like, wait, you guys aren't, you guys aren't being funny at all. Like what? You're just talking about drapes. I, I'm not interested in drapes, but I was also too scared to like shake it up and change the subject. So that was 88 you were an extra. Do you remember any sketches? 
Uh, it was probably more like, so I was an intern at Letterman, 88, 88, 89, and then, um, yeah, probably around 90, 91. So it was like the Adam Sandler, David Spade, Chris Rock, uh, 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 Chris Farley era. And uh, um, I felt like, you know, like like I, for some reason I was let in the room and got to hang out with all those guys and kind of watch what they did over there. Um, well, I worked my way into Letterman as a, as a writer's assistant and sort of started to figure out what I, what I could do. Cool. And... Um... When did you come up with kind of guy in a bear suit? So that guy in a bear suit, uh, which which is the perfect kind of acting for me, which is you're in a costume, no one else sees your face, you don't have to memorize lines, you just wander around and get a few laughs. Like that's like that is great. I could do I can I can do that. Um, that guy in a bear suit comes out of necessity. So as you know, the the late night and late uh, late show were every night. You know, when I was there, they started shooting two on Thursdays and having Friday off. But when I was there, we'd do one every night, every weeknight. And the show was on for as long as you could see into the future. You know, now I work on shows where you get 10 episodes or six episodes. or It's it's very manageable to imagine, like, we'll figure out, even if you're doing 25 episodes in a season, you're like, we'll figure them out. With Letterman, it was just like, we need infinity. Yeah. We need it. <laughs> you know, and Dave, Dave, to his credit, but also... Uh, this destroys you was, um, you know, he wanted to reinvent the talk show every night in some way. He wanted it to feel fresh and interesting and, and unusual and different, which would make him engaged and a better host. And I, and I got that and it set the bar very high, which was like, we can't just do, you know, like the top 10 stuck, but there was often this, like, we gotta, how can we change it? How can we make it something fresh? We can't just like read jokes every night. So anyway, there were many nights where you prepare something and then it was like, uh, Dave would either feel like it was too familiar or he got bored with it in rehearsal or it didn't work. And then suddenly you're like, what are we going to do tonight? We've got like a half an hour and the cameras roll and this goes out to the world, you know? Um, so the guy in the bear suit came out of that kind of necessity, which was just one day. It was like, what are we going to do? It'd be nice to have something Dave could kind of screw around with. You know, okay, we knew we could put a camera up you know, uh, either on 53rd Street or on Broadway or Times Square. And what kind of experiment could we do that Dave could put up the camera and kind of play with it? If that was fun for him, it might take up the whole show. And if it wasn't, then it would at least be a funny, weird experiment, something to try it. And, and uh, you, you start thinking of like, what can we get in 10 minutes? And uh, bear suits are easily rentable. So that was like, uh, we can get a bear suit and we have a camera. What do we do? That's where that came from. <laughs> I was in the audience when a guy in a bear suit went into flash dancers. Okay. That well. was uh, maybe the first one. Maybe it was a hail of cab was the first one and then flash dancers was the second one. But yeah, there there I probably uh walked by you on the street at some point that night. <laughs> probably. Um I I would remember if a guy in a bear suit walked past me though. <laughs> um those were always I will say those were always um terrifying because they weren't you know, they weren't set up in, in a way. Those first early ones were just like, let's see what happens. And then you'd go over and the guy at the door would be like, what's up? It's $5 to get in or whatever. I'm like, you know, at, at some point I would have to decide whether I was going to explain we're on camera and it's part of Letterman and please let me in because I could hear, I had an earpiece in and I could hear Dave going like, come on, is there anything, this is boring or whatever. And I'd be like, how do I make something happen? You know, and it was always like, um, wrestling with the purity of the piece was like, do you let these real life humans in on this, you know, or not? Right. But um, um, the scariest one was hugging people. Can, can a guy in a bear suit get a hug from a stranger? Mm. I was actually going up to New Yorkers on the street and they're like, give me a hug. And uh, a few of them were like, one person said, I'll shoot your ass. And I was like, okay. No. And I, I, I walked away and Dave was going like, what's he doing? Why isn't he hugging the guy? And I was like, I'm not gonna get shot for this. It's just comedy. Didn't that something like that happen to Rupert? Uh, Rupert, we, we put Rupert in some very uh, questionable and scary situations, which were, uh, you know, it was, I, I felt like those Rupert things. So so Dave would have an earpiece. We Dave, myself, Robert, and John Beckerman would sit in a car with Dave. And Dave would have a microphone and talk into Rupert's ear. And Rupert would just walk up to people and basically was a, 
a flesh puppet of Dave, you know, because right. Dave couldn't go in the street anymore and do anything. So this was a way, you know, we were always trying to figure out how can Dave interact with real people. But in a weird way, those Rupert things um, were kind of like an early version of Borat or whatever, where you're like, he's really messing with. They would just go like, ah, uh, you know, start doing push-ups or, uh, you know, grab their food, grab a piece of their food, just eat it. And Rupert was like, okay, Dave, I'll just do whatever you say. But not everybody reacted, uh, reacted well to that right. in real life. Um, now I've seen about Carson. He had like the room for the monologue writers, a building for the monologue writers and a building for the sketch or desk piece writers. How was that at Letterman? Uh, Dave, Dave really, it felt like Dave really owned the monologue. Like in, in a way he was the head writer of the monologue and he had, he would have one writer who corralled all the jokes that could be considered for that night and then present those to him. And, um, and then the two of them would work out the order of those and stuff. So the nice thing for me as when I was the head writer of the show, I didn't have to worry about the monologue. That was sort of a self-contained thing. Um, any of the writers on the staff were welcome to contribute jokes that could go towards the monologue, uh, though there were a few uh, people who only did that. Um, and, and in general, there was a little bit of a generational divide there where this monologue writing was a little bit of an old school talent. Like, like I felt like those guys had studied Jack Benny and Don Rickles and like this other generation of comics. And then people writing bits and trying to figure out what what Rupert could do on the street or whatever, were, you know, were an, another generation of comedy writers. So there was some interesting crossover there. And, and, you know, I think from both sides looking down like, oh, those guys just do the like screwing around in the studio stuff. And these guys are like, oh, they're just writing the old monologue jokes from the 1950s. But eh, we all had fun together. And we often were in a room at the same time. Okay. And um, do you get to meet Meg Parsant? I don't think I ever met Meg uh, in person. I think it was always via video and across across the. That world. was a great bit. That unfortunately, when he moved studios, he couldn't do. Yeah, yeah. But, but we got Mujibur and Sirajul. Yeah. So 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 moving into the new place was just sort of like, who lives in the neighborhood that we can milk like twenty episodes out of? And one of the first pair of people we ran into around the corner was Mujibur and Sirajul and. Those guys were really sweet, interesting humans, you know, like it was funny to meet them and they were really funny on camera and just kind of off and weird and, but, but uh, we spent a lot of time with them and got to know them and they were actually, it's funny, I, when I was, I got married about, uh, right around that, what, uh, whatever year, uh, anyway, I can't remember exactly the, 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 I mean, I remember what year I got married, so it was 99 and, and I guess we moved there in 95. Five or six? When did late shows? Ninety-three. Ninety-three. Thank you. Um, so I had just moved to Hollywood and was working at Simpsons where I got married. And in my guest list, of course, I was like, "Oh, we got to invite Dave. We got to invite Sarah Jewel Mujibar. And my wife, who was counting like the plates mm -hmm. and the things, was like, "You can't just invite Sarah Jewel Mujibar to the wedding. Like that's they're you know like they're not your best friends." I was like, hey, "I sat in, I sat around with those guys for a lot of you know like." A lot of time. It's weird what showbiz does, you know. Like I went to Woodstock with with Larry Bud Melman, you know, and you're just like the kind of bonding you do over that kind of trip. It's very, very uh, intense. It's like going to war with somebody, but this somebody happens to be Larry Bud Melman, you know. Now, when you talk to him, did you call him Calvert or did you call him Larry? Call him Calvert. Um, yeah. So in in uh, in uh, real life, he was Calvert, and it was always he was somebody. I think Adam Resnick described him as uh it was like trying to move a piece of furniture or a, an old sofa into position and then, sh and then getting something on camera and the couple you know like i i would send writers off to like you know uh the super bowl with calvert you know and it's like oh they're gonna have to go through so much airports and whatever it's like moving a chair through all of that stuff but uh yeah i, I went to woodstock with him and it, it, there's a lot of like calvert calvert he couldn't hear very well he didn't totally understand the jokes. He people loved him, so you'd constantly have like frat guys running up and screaming in his ear and stuff. And it, it was it was a, a weird a weird situation. <laughs> it's like Spuds, he was like Spuds McKenzie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Was it, were you there when I know you were there, but were you 
in Lily Howard, Norway with Dave's mom? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I haven't done Norway, so uh, Maria Pope and um, I want to say Stephen Sherrill went, uh, this uh, writer we had, went, actually went to Norway. But we would usually, well, with those kind of things, have um, a segment, a writer, segment producer who was kind of in charge of, of the logistics, um, but was also like Maria was was incredibly funny and could write jokes and know where the comedy was. Also, and then usually we'd have a writer on the ground to figure out, um, you know, if we needed a few lines or this or that there to help help work through anything. Um, and then, it, it, you know, we didn't have Zoom then, but we would do video feeds through NBC satellites or whatever and talk to talk to them in the afternoon and. You know the writing staff would send jokes and but yeah so so that was a whole logistical thing because it was 4 a.m in lillehammer when we would be doing this or that and we would you know there was a lot of like um international production it was fa fascinating i uh i started watching i was 13 in 1990 so i watched from 1990 to 2015. dave perfect and i taped it every night and when i woke up to go to school that's what i watched I remember, I remember getting ready for school. Yeah, as I was getting ready for school. I can't stay up. I'm never good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, yeah. I, I stayed up. So my my uh, my the problem with my high school was I and the reason I I don't think I had some B's and A's but mostly C's was because of Dave and I would stay up to one thirty every night to watch these like transmissions from New York and I you know mine were like that was like eighty probably eighty to to through when I worked there, 95, 6, 7, and then I couldn't watch anymore. Too much PTSD. Hmm. I uh, had this weird thing where I was, um, I'd watch the show when I was doing my homework sometimes too, and then the next day when I, when I would stay for a test, and then when I would take the test, the Letterman jokes or what was going on would make me remember the stuff that I was studying at the same time. So I had like an audio, uh, not... Not when you see something, but you, I hear something I remember, and I was able to use that. So Dave got me through high school and college, and that's great. Yeah, I would say that Dave got me to drop out of college because I I, could, I couldn't focus on anyway. <laughs> uh, you were a production assistant at Clerks Explains It All. Yeah, so I I was an intern at Letterman, and when that ended, I went to something called the Comedy Channel at HBO, and, mm -hmm. and it, it it became. It merged with Ha TV, which was MTV's attempt. So there were two attempts at making comedy channels at the same time, and then it became Comedy Central. Now those two merged and became that. But at the time, I left my internship, got a job at HBO, started this comedy channel, and was there for about a year, year and a half. Great experience. We got to make a lot of stuff. And that ended. I was sort of like, oh, geez, I should go back to college. I had only done two years of college. And then um, one of the one of the women I worked with there was starting Clarissa Explains It All. I was like, oh, you should come work for me on this new show. And I was like, oh, it's a job. I guess I should just keep working, you know? And I I was a, I was the post supervisor, which was a weird thing. So I was just sitting in the edit room, editing, editing, editing all those shows. And and um, it was in Orlando too. So I was like, wait, I love New York and I love Letterman. And what, what am I doing in Orlando doing a sitcom for kids? But um, it was a inventive, interesting sitcom, and, and uh, it was fun to get so much intensive editing work, you know, like really understand how shows come together and, uh, you know, what, what you shoot and how to make it. How the editing room is like this third piece of the puzzle, which is, you know, writing, shooting, and editing are like the three big components. So making it, anyway, I was there for a little while, but I knew I didn't want to be in Orlando. We were literally, the editing room was on the Universal tour tour so people would come by and take pictures of you all day it was so weird it was so weird yeah, my uh, cousin uh, wrote for the show for two years okay uh, the the second and third you were there the first season i, I saw it she was there yeah. the second and third and we went to universal and, we, and hung out with her that and yeah, we were on the yeah and we were on the tour. Cool. I, I mean i love i think one of the things for me and maybe you, you have a little bit of this too was like when I was 16, I came out, I, I visited LA for the first time and went on a Universal tour, you know, and you really feel like you get to look behind the curtain on that tour. Like it is, it's, you know, we're driving around. I can't remember who it was at the time, but it's like, you literally see like, there's Mr. T. He's walking to a set to shoot a show. And you're like, what? These people are, you know, like that close. And, and it, you know, um, and I knew like just, 
from that tour. Like, I want to be here. I want to be, you know, back, 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 backstage somehow. So, but anyway, at Clarissa, I was basically begging. I had met Steve O'Donnell, who was the head writer of Letterman at the time. And I, uh, not begging in a pathetic way, but I was sending him packets of my writing and going like, I'm ready to be a writer. Like, please hire me if you have an opening. So I was really, um, really on that. He called one day and was like, hey, Dominic, we got a spot for you. And I was like, over the moon. And then he was like, no, 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 not as a writer, as the writer's assistant. And I went, oh, 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 okay, I'll take it, whatever. That's great. I'm in the door. So that got me back there. Cool. And um, yeah, I had Alan Haley on yesterday. Did you work on his show? Uh, I didn't specifically work on his show, but um, there were five hosts at the Comedy Channel. Alan was one. I worked with Rich Hall. Um, so Onion so, World. Um, uh, so Onion World, exactly. And uh, uh, but Alan, we, you know, there, it was a small staff, so it felt like we all worked together and got to know each other. Um, yeah, Alan was great. I loved that show. That was that. That felt like the closest to like a Letterman kind of uh, kind of show that they were doing there. So. So, I, studied, I studied everything they were doing. He's, he's a terrifically funny, smart guy, too. I had Rich Troll on, too, which is... Oh, cool. Yeah, Rich is, Rich is... I give him a lot of credit for really just giving me giving me a shot. Um, so when you went to The Simpsons, um, were you burnt out on the uh, for doing for five years of, of Letterman? And you just, or did you just want to go to L.A.? Or? I, so I was the head writer for about a year, and... Um, that job was very intense and I really was, I was 25 years old and I was, I was felt like I was dying and I was not sure why, like actually literally like I think I'm dying. I don't know what's wrong. Um, it's, it's a, it's just an incredible amount of weight that that show, like every day feeling this weight of like, we need, we need to reinvent all of entertainment is what it felt like. And I, you know, it's, it is what it is. But, um, and, um, the word got out that the Simpsons were looking for a writer somehow. And somebody, somebody asked like, Oh, you, you should go to the Simpsons. And I was like, you know, all I ever wanted to do was work at Letterman and be at that show. And, and I liked the Simpsons. It was in its, it, they'd done seven seasons. It was a roughly the seventh season. And I was like, yeah, but isn't that show getting a little old? I mean, it's seven seasons in, you know, like mm-hmm. how many shows went past maybe 10, you know, it would be crazy. Um, so it didn't seem like the freshest place to go. Honestly, I was like, you know, I had friends who had left for Seinfeld. I had friends who left for um, for Larry Sanders. Those felt like the hot newish newer shows. Um, and I was like, ah, am I, you know, am I? Anyway, I I now crazily, in retrospect, this is like the arrogance of youth. Was like reluctantly took a job at The Simpsons, um, and. Uh, moved to LA. I, part of it was I didn't want to leave New York either. I love I love being in New York. I had a girlfriend. I had a great apartment. You know, like I felt like I was get figuring everything out. Anyway, but I was also dying. So I figured, why not go to LA? Give it a try. Um, you can always get out and come back, maybe. So yeah, I went to The Simpsons thinking, uh, like, yeah, we'll see. And then just was blown away by how fun. Uh, it was to suddenly write stories, you know, like your jokes aren't just joke, 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 you know, there's actually something to hang jokes on. There's something of substance that kind of the, that co- that uh, collects them or, or absorbs them or gives them a platform. Um, so learning how to tell story was really eye-opening and interesting for me um, and a wonderful, smart group of people to, to learn that process with. Um, but also the pace of The Simpsons was so different. And uh, it, it really, it took me, it took me probably a whole season, like a whole year of working on it before I understood that, like, you don't have to frantically pitch ideas every day. Uh, we have, those shows take nine months to make rather than right. a day, like Letterman. And, uh, and then you can kind of really think through things and, and you're going to get another shot at a scene, you know, like when the animatic comes back three months from now, you're going to look at it again and really decide if that's working or that story points working or so um yeah it was a process but it was really uh uh it was really great a great fortuitous lucky next stop for me so in your first episode in marjorie trust uh you invented mr sparkle yeah and um do people have you sign mr sparkle stuff or i have done a little bit of that i got actually it's funny 
I got a couple of these for our, we're doing a charity auction, and I got a couple of these uh, historical plushies that I was like, I'll sign a couple of those, why not, just for fun. Uh, we did, you can see in the wall behind me, I don't know if, that, if, if uh, your listeners can can uh, hear those things on the wall, but there's a few uh, Mr. Sparkle, pieces of Mr. Sparkle art up there. We did a, we did a really fun a charity show at Shepherd Fairies Gallery last, maybe it was a year and a half ago or so, uh, where we had 60 art artists reinterpret Mr. Sparkle and do their versions of it, and then um, and then and sold those. And I, I of course, I'm a big fan, so I bought a bunch of the paintings, which was crazy. Um, but yeah, Mr. Sparkle was was a lucky first stop. That that episode, you know, I was I would people were like, you know, uh, what are some real stories? Where where like what are things that happened in their childhood, whatever that we could use? And I was talking about this thing that happened on Nantucket Island where I grew up, where the dump, you know, we lived on an island. There wasn't a shopping mall. There was something called the Madigan Mall, which was the dump. And you, you'd go, there would be big uh, dump drop-off days where you'd go and you'd see, oh, is there anything cool? Oh, somebody throwing out a half a bicycle. I can make some, I can make the bike out of that or whatever. I'd find matchbox cars there or whatever. So um, we were sort of talking about how weird that was to like go shopping at the dump and that, that the genesis of Mr. Sparkle started there. And then we were like, what, if home, what, what would they find there? What would, you know, for this B story? Um, and um, I think George Meyer pitched the box of detergent with his face on it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then it was like, oh, that's fun. That leads to like this mystery. And then we were sort of like, we were all watching Japanese commercials at the time. And like, oh, that'd be fun to take us down that path. And where would that go? And, and it was really more like um, pitching out a mystery show of just like, what would be the beats in a, uh, you know, a procedural drama uh, if you found like this clue and how would you track it down, track it down? So that just kind of morphed into what became Mr. Sparkle. And then um, we sent a bunch of references to the animators and they built that beautiful Mr. Sparkle uh, graphic and everything. And, and then we had to figure out where did that graphic come from? That was like the hardest day, I, I think, was just like, why would like literally now we've got to the end of the mystery but we don't know what why or what and then we had to like like how would they have come up with homer's face like they found it in a uh, yearbook they they got this they, da, 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 da. and finally it was like wait fishbowl fishbowl so we landed on that um another episode that you did that the last temptation of crust where basically you turned crusty into george carlin yes so fun. I, yeah. So that was, uh, I, you know, like those were the Mike Scully years. I think Mike was a big um, Letterman fan, Johnny Carson fan. Like he's a, he is probably one of the sharpest, funniest, smartest uh, joke writers uh, ever. You know, like he could have worked in any era and delivered monologue jokes for anybody. Uh, and then he found himself running The Simpsons. So there was, there was a, there was a, an appreciation for that kind of humor. And, um, and I think he was like, Don, you wrote, you wrote for Letterman. Why don't, you, why don't you do this this episode about jokes? You know, about about uh, reinventing yourself. And that was that was um, and, and how comedy changes over the years, and what does a what does a comic do? And using Krusty to to explore that um, that was a funny one because we had Dave said he would do do it right. He was going to do the voice the the this um, sort of advisor to Krusty when he hits hits the bottom and. It went on and on and on, and I was, it was probably the first time I had contacted Letterman since I had left, and I was like, oh, we'll see how this goes, because there's a little bit of, like, the mafia, you know, when you leave the family, you're out, and I was like, I think I'm out, but let's try, and and we got a good response, and they thought Dave was going to do it, and then it just kind of dragged on, and then he wasn't going to do it, and then, then we talked about, like, well, who would be fun to have in this role, and, and um, with the Simpsons, you rarely get in a situation, but we were getting pretty close to the air date, you know, and you've got to actually draw and animate these characters. You can't, you can't have too much time, you know, you can't, can't do it the day before. But, um, I, I, my whole career had been in this, like, there's, there's light and dark. There's, you know, there's the, there's the good side and the bad side. There's Dave and there's Leno, right? And I was like, and, and somebody was like, why don't you just get Leno? He's just across the, he's in Burbank, you know, like he's right here. We can probably get him. And I was like, no, no, we can't get Leno. No, no. That's like, 
he's like the worst human in the world, right? I mean, I thought that's not all I've heard. Anyway, we ended up getting Leno. I went over to the Tonight Show, and um, he was probably the nicest piece of talent I've ever worked with. He was like, hey, how's it going? What? What? Oh, these are lines. These are great. So funny. I'm laughing out loud. He knocked him out. We had him done. We drew him up, and the show was on. Within, in a, I don't... I. Remember, I remember it being a couple of weeks. It was probably a month later or something, but it was one of the fastest turnarounds. And uh, I had to sort of uh, swallow my pride and go like, well, I, I got to admit, Jay was uh, was fun to work with. And you look, don't you hate pants? <laughs> yeah. And you got to write the Candy Narrow song. Oh, my God, yes. That was that was a, a dream job. And uh, I still get a check. It, it's Probably more than anything I've written, I still get a check for like $1.49, $2.60 for like it airing in Japan or wherever it's playing around the world. You know, you get these little, little things. So um, that was that was one of the funnest assignments. You know, we often would write in a room together there. It's very collaborative, of course. But every once in a while, something would come up that was like, why don't you uh, – so Mike Scully assigned that to me and Dan Graney. and was like, why don't you guys go work on, on a song for this? And we just sat in there, and the best we could do was like, oh, songs should rhyme. So we were just lining up funny rhymes, you know, on pads all afternoon and and, and put that put that together. It was a blast. I watched Bart oh, Starr. I watched, Bart, I watched Bart Starr yesterday. Yeah. He made a couple of jokes about vapor lock, which I, I don't know. It's very, very sensitive. <laughs> sure. Uh, so here's a, a Long Island. I think... Uh, I think Joe Namath lives up there, but uh, I had had um, we we had done a bit on Letterman um, with this uh, a, a guy who it was a small town news like uh, right, and we had found an ad that said like big gas man uh, something something, and it was like a guy who worked at a gas station in in Regina, Saskatchewan, and we're like, oh my god, the guy's name is Dick Ass Man. That's insane, right? And we're all. 23-year-old writers and couldn't believe this, and the, this is the funniest thing ever. So we did the joke on the small town news, and then it was like, oh, let's call Dick Asman. So a few days later, we called the guy and got him on the phone and talked to him. It was pretty funny. And then a week later, we were like, we should do something else with Dick Asman. And the thing we did was we did an ad for the gas station with Joe Namath, and Joe Namath came in and was like, get pumped with Dick Asman. I don't remember exactly, but something like that. And I was like, oh, my God, that was so great. Joe has a, hey, me and Joe Namath. Well, like, I, you know, like, I'm not a Jets fan, but I was a Joe Namath fan. He got, I, that guy was unbelievable. Like, such, a, such an era of sports that doesn't exist anymore now. And, um, like, a real-life superhero. So it was a thrill to meet him, to work with him. He was super funny. Flash forward to The Simpsons, we're, like, um, we're, like, doing the classic, like, Brady Bunch uh, Bart in the backyard throwing a football through a thing, and we're like, what if Joe Namath shows up and gives him advice? You know, like, you know, it's like, oh, my God, yes, Joe Namath is so funny. Like, this would be amazing. So it happened again. We Joe Namath showed up. He did the, that, that bit, and um, we decided it was funniest if he didn't actually give any advice. So it was like, what does he get distracted with? And, again, I think George Meyer pitched paper lock. Like okay, I think he maybe he had a real experience with vapor lock and was like uh, that was a way to uh, get get through it. But here's the crazy thing: I worked with Joe Namath twice. I didn't have him sign anything ever, which is I'm like, wait, I why didn't I get a, a helmet signed or something? That would have you know right. anyway. <laughs> and the last episode I want to talk about um, Doing in the wind. It is one of my favorite yeah. episodes and one of my favorite lines. Um, Hopefully you rewrote it. Um, when they go, he talks about did the uh, he sold the VW van and he goes, it's like the sixties ended that day, December thirty first, nineteen sixty nine. I love that joke. Amazing. Yeah. I love that. I love those. I love those kind of jokes too. That is is. Yeah, I, I actually wrote a joke yesterday. It's probably been done before in other contexts, but I'm working on a show for Fox right now called This Country that'll be out next year. Um and. One of we have a we have an old sort of a crazy guy who wanders around town and he's like ah oh, I remember you know I have such fond memories of going to the dentist as a kid which uh, none none of which I can remember right now and I was like it's that kind of joke which is like you're stating the obvious anyway um, but yes I love that joke I love that episode um, my parents were hippies 
I, I felt very, very invested in Homer's journey and connecting with, in a weird way, my, my parents through them and, and, you know, some of those, those ideals and that freedom and, and, uh, you know, and Homer t- t- touching on a little bit. And then I love the, I still, one of my favorite things is the twist of just like, I'm going to freak some minds with Uptown Girl. That's a great one. That's a great joke. <laughs> that was, uh, I had to fight for that. There was a lot of like, why Billy Joel? Why Uptown Girl? I was like, it is the squarest, like straightest song. It is also a reference to the 50s that Billy Joel is doing in the 90s. That like, it is the least hippie thing yeah. you could come up with. Um, and I could see it blowing Homer's mind because he's, you know, for whatever reason. Um, but uh, that was also a super fun episode because we got uh, Yola Tango, uh, the band from Hoboken, uh, to come and do the closing theme song for us. So the credits for that has a very trippy version of the Simpsons theme music uh, by those guys. And um, I had a, such a, a thrill. We happened to crazily, this sounds like another world now that we're locked down right now, but uh, we were vis- we happened to cross over with them when they were on tour in Barcelona. And um, we we're like, hey, we're going to come to the show. It's so fun. We're all in Barcelona. Isn't this crazy? And they opened their show in Barcelona with the Simpsons, like a 13-minute trippy version of the Simpsons theme. And I think, you know, there's a room full of Spaniards who came to see Yolo Tenga and are going like, what is this crazy concert? But that was such a thrill and so fun. And, and um, yeah, the reach of the Simpsons. And they did your music. seeps into everything. And they did the music for your documentary. Yeah, so, yeah, we got to be friends through the Simpsons. And then, um, you know, that we've been friends with them for a long time. They're just uh, wonderfully they're, – they're, they're fans of comedy, but they're also um, really just sweet, wonderful people. They played at our wedding and and uh, have done uh, charity shows for. I have a, a charity that supports kids' music programs, and they played for that a number of times. But um, we, when I was doing this documentary, we were like, "How are we?" Didn't have a, I know it's a Netflix doc, but we didn't have much of a budget to to um, do stuff. And we're like, it really needs music. I mean, when you're talking about comedy and hallucinogens and all the many moods and feelings that those can, that, that, that the psychedelics can take you through. I was like, we need a real score. And, um, so we just talked to them and they, they, I don't think, I don't know who, I felt like this would be a, a big uh, story or something, but like they really gave us the keys to their catalog and we're like, see what of our songs work where, and let's try to make them, them, um, you know, fit and fill this out so it's it was one musical voice for the whole movie we thought that would be a unifying factor so that was that was a thrill to have them do that i really i really got their name from uh, a met game a ball was hit to an outfielder and yelled yo latengo and the other player was didn't speak spanish and they ran into each other that's right that's right um i think ira is the big baseball fan in in the in the band but yes it's when i learned that i was like wait because they're they're a complex indie rock band who's now been around for 40 plus years. I mean, they, they've had, I remember when we used to go like, the Rolling Stones have been around for 25 years. This is crazy. And now it's like, yeah, Yola Tango's been around for 50 years and put out, you know, album, whatever. But, um, you know, when I learned that their, their name was a sports reference and not some obtuse, uh, you know, corner of rock and roll or something, I was like, wait, what? Okay. And you get to see NRDQ a lot of times because of Mike Scully. Scully is obsessed. He is, yes, Scully. Scully is obsessed with NRBQ. He made a great doc about them. Actually, it, it, uh, I don't know where it is, but people can find that. Um, yes, another another great obscure rock, uh, you know, band that uh, has huge fan base, um, but maybe never broke as big as they would have wanted. Right. Uh, just shoot me. Any? What was it? Any memory? Big. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I, it, just humans are really weird. Uh, um, uh, you know, I don't know what your listeners are, are, are uh, the specific kind of things they want to focus on or are interested in, but, you know, it was a weird situation for me because I was on, I, I had left The Simpsons, I got a deal at Burlstein Gray, and, and, and part of these deals are usually like that you can have a, you'll have two years where you're developing and then a third year where you owe services or whatever. And, and so I had the choice to provide services on one of their shows and just shoot me with one of their shows. And it was a weird year for that show because it was uh, the first year that um, Steve, what's his name? The guy who created it. 
does uh oh well it's hilarious if anyone was there they're like you don't remember his name uh steve uh uh you know um I know you the, 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 gotta create it yeah. anyway he left the show it was his first year out, out he does modern family now so he, i think he was leaving to do that or something else and um and these two guys um joe Port and david Garcia took over the show they were they were young they were up for like let's have fun with it let's reinvent this thing um but uh Steve was still checking in on the scripts and we got in the situation. And by the way, I hadn't, it was the first show I worked on that I hadn't really watched a ton of. I had seen a few, I knew about it, but I, I didn't know the show, you know, that well. And I was like, yeah, this is kind of a gig. It was the first time I was not like following my passion to like something I thought was one of the funniest things in show business. And um, so I was, I, and I was brought in at a high level to like, kind of, you know, run the room and help, help. So I felt a little like off, like I didn't, quite know the what what the point was so i was just like what's the funniest thing we could do and we would write scripts the way we would write scripts is often stay up till 6 a.m in the morning and then we'd send it off to steve i'll remember his last name it's so crazy because he's like a showbiz legend steve in, right? right what levitan what levitan levitan Good Lord. Sorry, sorry, Steve Levitan, though I barely know you. Uh, it, <laughs> it's so crazy. Okay, so the scripts would be sent off to Steve, and then he'd be like, eh, I don't really like this, come up with something else. But we'd have the table read the next day, so we'd stay up till 6 a.m. again and write a whole new episode. And then that was some version of that would get done. It was a chaotic, crazy year. Um, but we wrote, I think the things, what I didn't understand was that the show was grounded in some real relationships. And I was kind of coming in and going like I had seen the slow Donnie episode and going like, oh, they're well, that was hysterical. Like, <laughs> I was like, let's do more episodes like that. And I was writing sort of the crazier end of the show, um, but but I didn't really understand the other end of it. And and uh, we wrote a lot of crazy episodes um, that, that that were fun fun to imagine, but I think they were also sort of driving Steve. Uh, afar um crazy because he was like Ooh, where's the heart where's the you know where's the grounding where's the thing anyway i did it for a year had a blast we you know wrote wrote some funny stuff um i uh, what the couple things that come to mind are the uh burning house episode that uh david wolford and i wrote together was a kind of a behind the music behind the scenes of this student film which was a little conceptual but really fun to write and have david spade who is, I think, underrated as a comic actor. He can, he delivers when you give him, a, you know, he's, he was really fun to work with. And then um, the other one was, uh, we had, I gave Foley an episode where he played a, a blind man, which, which uh, now we, I think we would work harder to find an actual, someone who was actually blind to play the part. But he played someone who kept just complaining about his dead black holes and he couldn't see it. And, and Maya, fell for say, Laura Sanchiacamo fell for him because, oh, he needs me, he needs me. But he was kind of a jerk and kind of a perv, and he was kept trying to get her to describe pornography to her. He's like, I can't see it. I don't understand it. Dead black holes. What's going on? And she was like, this is gross. Why are you making me do it? Anyway, that was, those were, those felt like fun, fun to write, fun, great actors, you know. Yeah, that was the show was underrated, the whole show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that you could pull out like, the ten best episodes would would um, be would compete with any ten best episodes. You know that that the best of that show was really good. That show and news radio, I thought, were like so underrated because of Friends and Seinfeld. Right, right. Yeah, you're right. I think there was I, I think there was like there were some monsters in the room that ate up all the bandwidth at the time. You know, like right. that the, those shows were such so, so, so huge. And I, you know, there was a there was a while that like Cheers was still ending. Like some other great shows were still around. And, yeah. All right, I'm going to skip ahead because, you know, I don't want to keep you all that. Uh, Parks and Rec. Yeah. Love that, so that was a, that was, that was such a, uh, a, uh, I, I, uh, so the quick version is, you know, I had been at New Girl for the first two seasons, and that was a show that kind of was being done in a, the way Just Shoot Me was for me, which was like, we're staying up all night, we're killing ourselves to make these, and it was the first time in my career where I felt like that cliche of just like, I might be too old for this shit. I don't know if I can do this every night or for 10 seasons, you know? And I got a call from uh, Parks that was like, hey, we want you to 
play this guy burn on the show and i was like you want me to act like i i, I played the guy in the bear suit but and acting i don't know what um but i wouldn't say no of course and i went over and I, I i just did it was like a couple lines in the scene and while i was there i i, I knew my sure a little bit but not very well but i while i was there i had a really good time literally like thrown into a scene where you're improving with amy polar and rob love <laughs> like what what's happening oh my god um but afterwards, I told Mike, I was like, please don't make me go back to to uh, New Girl. It's so fun here. And it did really seem so fun. It was so calm. The set was so, everyone was having a good time. Um, and Mike was like, are you really looking to get out? Because um, I, I just created the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and um, I could use some help over here. And I was like, yes, please. And uh, we were towards the end of season two, and then, I got an offer to come over to Parks for season for for it was season six of Parks, um, and I jumped on it and I got out a new girl and went there and uh, it was like this haven in show business of just like oh I'm not too old for this I wish I was here for the whole run um, it was a lot really funny smart people doing optimistic comedy I was like what a rare mix and then also. The cast and crew were on the, all on the same page with the writers and producers. So it was like this sort of uh, wonderful, rare, the rarest thing, which is like they all are having fun making the show together, you know? Um, so that, that was a, that, that restored my faith in, in making stuff. And the show, is there going to be another season of EP Bio? I don't know. We just finished season three, which, um, Unfortunately, we did. I think we got eight out of ten shot before COVID. So there's two uh, Phantom episodes out there somewhere. I don't really know how the Peacock. It's you know season three airs on the Peacock, and I don't know how their metrics are measured and um, what will make them pick stuff up. I don't know if they're picking anything up right now anyway. Uh, but that show has been also just a dream. Um, Mike O'Brien. If if people haven't followed Mike O'Brien's career. Look up his craziness on on the internet. He's both a a wonderfully gifted and funny weirdo, but also a internet prankster. And he does some amazing. Follow his Instagram. He does some amazing like uh, Instagram conversations with uh, people who don't know what's happening. Anyway, he's fun to follow. So Mike, that's Mike's show. Mike has created a a, a wonderfully weird uh, uh, world for both kids and and uh, adult, you know, damaged adults to explore their issues in. And uh, it's so fun to write for, for that show and for him. And, and uh, uh, yeah, I hope there's more. I'd love to do more. I mean, Patton Oswalt, Paul Appel. Oh, my God. And Howard. I mean, and Lauren like, is the executive producer. Yep, yep, yep. It's it's Broadway video. And, um, yeah, Paul Appel was like, we were writing – it was after the pilot, and we were writing the first episodes, and we got a note from the network was like, we need a strong female and, uh, you know, someone else in the mix. And, and there's there's really funny women in the show, so it wasn't like we, we there weren't any, but um, I think what they were thinking is they wanted uh, they wanted to have, like, Kat, Kathy Bates in, um, in the office, right? Is it Kathy Bates who came in? Um, yeah, right? Wasn't she Michael Scott's, like, boss for a while? Um, okay. <laughs> Check out the office, dude. It's pretty funny. No, I mean, everyone tells me that. But uh, yeah. they wanted like that sort of ball busting boss who comes in and just makes it all hard. I'm like, well, we got the principal, we got friends, and whatever. And then we just started talking about like who would just be the funniest actress to add to this cast. And Mike was like, the funniest person I know is Paula Pell, 100% funniest person. And then it just became us going like, what would be? How can we have a a somewhat self-contained place to do let Paul felt run mad, you know, and uh, and we settled on her being Patton's assistant, and it became she is not like a traditional like boss or someone he would have to deal with, but he's she's a formidable force that he has to deal with, you know. We're like, well, that's even funnier that this is a, this is a crazy person who's going to complicate everyone's life. Right. Um. I said before I was a teacher, and my my AP. The head of the social studies department is a big fan of the show. And so he came in one day to do an observation. I walked in with a paper bag with an, with an apple on it and threw it on my desk. I didn't say, what's up, idiots? But, right, right. And he, he laughed because he knew what I was doing. And then I That's great. Went you got to make sure 
make sure they know what you're doing. But other, otherwise, but that's great. Yeah, we we uh we so I work on Silicon Valley, which is a very research intensive show, and and I have never done a show like that where you really meet the people in those businesses and interview them, and you know it's almost investigative reporting. And um, so on AP Bio. I like we did a little bit of that. Like we brought in some teachers. My daughter happened to be in AP Bio that year, so we brought in like her friends who were in the class with her and grilled them about what it's like. We we brought in a principal from a school. We talked to um, different AP teachers, and we're like like one one episode that um sorry my my iPad's giving me the five five percent oh. running out of battery. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the episodes we did was uh, teacher jail. And that, that came right out of uh, out of one of the teachers we interviewed was like, oh yeah, we have something called teacher jail that you get to send to for this, 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 or this. And we're like, oh, what's a we gotta do a teacher jail episode. That's incredible. So um, real life, nothing's funnier than real life, you know. You, you just gotta dig in a little bit, find it. All right. And so thank you very much for talking to me. I uh, I'm finally able to crack the Letterman writers. They don't want to talk. I don't know why. It's a I think it is. It's like the mafia, you know. Like you don't want to, you don't want to piss off Dave. You don't want to even. There's this, this, the uh, the structure of production when we did that show was so strong that it was just like you don't want to rock the boat. There's there's the lanes you stick in, like you know. There's all these rules and and uh, I don't know. I have nothing but love for the show now and for for Dave and Tommy so much and and uh, you know it was it was a. Uh, Wonderful experience that almost killed me, but it it, it mm. only makes you stronger. So and I'll be talk, I'll be talking to Fred Graver, and, cool. and possibly Meryl Marco, which I'm exci- really excited about that. Meryl's great. Um, Fred's great. They're both great. I yeah, I was so I was an intern when Fred was there. Right. Um, and and he was always kind of like a little bit of a pain in the ass with, with, with to the to the interns, you know. So uh, but I also thought he was terrifically funny and and. Um, He's gone on to such an interesting career of being an executive, and um, Meryl right now is doing um, auctions of all of her Letterman stuff on eBay. Like she keeps putting up an old jacket or an old thing for charity, which is uh, cool. So I've been sort of reliving those years through Meryl's stuff. I have a Friday's jacket that I bought from the show Friday. Wow! Because Saturday Night Live stuff is really expensive. Yeah, I know. I know. I keep going like, oh, it's for charity, but then I'm. I got. I still got a. A box full of Letterman jackets downstairs that I'm like, I I don't need any more of this stuff. All right, so if I see it on eBay, <laughs> keep your eyes open. All right, thank you very much, Ian. Great talking. We'll we'll uh, catch you on on the uh, on the air. I don't know somewhere. Yeah, I'll tell you when this is gonna air. Perfect. All right. Thanks, man. Great. Thank you. Have a good good Sunday. You too. Bye.